0: Welcome to Season 2 of the Sober Experiment podcast with Alex and Lisa. Our podcast is for anyone and everyone, whether you're still drinking, thinking about ditching the booze, or you've already quit alcohol for good. Our podcast is raw and still unedited to this day. Join us and our guests for tears, emotion, and some hilarious laugh out loud moments. Season
1: 2 is sponsored by Lunar Holistics. Lunar Holistics offers a wide range of professional home study courses, including counselling, life coaching, and NLP. They also offer courses in beauty therapy and for the more spiritual minded of you, they've got courses in tarot, palmistry, astrology and psychic development. So if you've been considering a new career or you want to learn just for fun, no matter where you are in the world, Lunar Holistics will enable you to gain a fully recognised, accredited and insurable qualification and no previous academic qualifications are required. Lunar courses are easy to follow and you can study from home at any time that suits you. We're really excited that Luna has offered to sponsor this season, as everything that they do aligns perfectly with our core values. I'm Alex, one half of the Sober Experiment. And I'm Lisa, the other half.
0: Hi, Lisa. Hi, Alex. (laughs) We don't actually normally put a video to our intros, do we? But we thought we'd come on and explain the chaos that has been today. It's just been a nightmare, hasn't it?
1: It's been such a nightmare, and I just want to say, Alice, I'm so grateful for you today because you've been amazing.
0: Just kind of picking pieces up everywhere. Well, so thank Don't you. Me. That's what best friends are for, and I love you. It's true. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. We've we've actually just interviewed um a lady called Emma Bell, who is amazing, and you're about to hear a podcast and watch it. And if you notice an empty chair for a good five minutes or so, Lisa really thought she was going to be one minute for a little emergency that turned into a bigger emergency and, yeah, we had to take her off, but my amazing editing, which i um, doing <laughs> today, you won't hear it. If you're listening, you'll be thinking, what's Shannon about? You'll just think, why is Alex talking all the time? Nothing new there though, is there? <laughs> no, nobody'll <laughs> even notice. I Lisa, look think- behind you. Look behind you, Lisa. Jeffrey's paws coming round the door. <laughs> Hi, Jeffrey. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you what we'll see an empty seat and be thinking like What's happened? But yeah, Lisa had to go. It was massively unavoidable. Emma was so gracious and just like got on with it. Um, yeah, and honestly, this lady talk about inspiration. I'm ta- Lisa I can't wait till you edit the video because that is your job I know I haven't <laughs> heard
1: any of this yet my head was so in the clouds and then obviously with um, having to go but I know you told me about uh, in the first place so I was really looking forward <laughs> to, um, to the podcast so I can't wait to listen to it so I'm in the same boat as everybody
0: else here And she will have to listen to it, right? So by the time this goes out, she will have listened to it because there were sound problems as well because Emma lives out in Dubai and it kept going funny. So she's actually got to edit the full video, which means she's got to watch it from beginning to end, which doesn't normally happen does it I'm looking to it and I don't watch
1: anything absolutely anything because I get so anxious and nervous about what we're putting out there or what we've spoke about I think if you listen back to yourself it's awful so we just
0: kind of record it from done out. Well, well it's so funny I mean there'd be like three room changes so there's this our intro then there's the next one then your chair's empty for ages and then all of- <laughs> Emma's in a completely different room so it's just going to look like we've hodgepodge this one together is that right? odge podge podge. <laughs> po- podge 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 job.
1: <laughs> I'm anyway, sure it'll be wonderful. It really I really, is. It's amazing. really hope everyone enjoys it. And I just do want to say also thank massive thank you to Emma for just being so understanding and gracious, like you said. Um, yeah, I'm really excited for it. It is brilliant,
0: honestly. You'll, you'll love it, you'll all love it. I'm really excited. Let us know what you think, by the way. Let's get some reviews on our thing. Tell us what you think of this one oh
1: yes we haven't asked for reviews for ages if you are liking it please do drop us a review because what that means is it just reaches more people doesn't it as well yeah yeah. and if you don't, like, you don't like it don't just just don't bother just keep just
0: keep your opinion to yourself <laughs> <laughs> we do like good opinions that agree with ours <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> hi emma thank you so much for joining us and agreeing to share your story with us today how are you I'm good, thank you. How are you guys doing? Yeah, I wish we were in Dubai, put it that
1: way. <laughs> oh, I and know was- you can just tell you somewhere sunny.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the weather's getting nice here now. So it's the opposite to England in that you stay in in the summer and you go out in the winter. So they shut the outside bars and restaurants for the summer because it's too hot because it gets like 50 degrees. Um, and then now it starts to cool off and it's like 30s, you know? So it's the complete opposite to home. <laughs> How long have you lived out in Dubai? About two years. Um, and then before that, I lived in Switzerland for about four. Oh, How have you? Have you if you've done I... a bit of travelling?
0: Mm. Nice,
2: um, I've been to Switzerland but not Dubai. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I prefer Dubai to Switzerland um, because Switzerland's a bit sort of sleepy, a bit slow going, so... Maybe it's the bipolar. I like to be a bit faster. I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Maybe. It would explain it, wouldn't it? (laughs) So you're um, a mentor for, is it trauma or general trauma or sexual
2: trauma? So I mentor people now in a group setting and a one-on-one setting. For um, mental health, it's like coaching, but I suppose I'm good because I'm relatable because I can really relate to people that are struggling with mental health, in particular depression, anxiety, and bipolar, and also people that are recovering from sexual trauma. Um, And I'm their three-steps-ahead person, and it's all about accountability because I believe that, yes, terrible things happen in life to us and to a degree – we are victims of what happens to us sometimes, but at the same time, to move forward, we have to own it. And we have to take charge of ourselves and everything in our story and own all of our story. Um, So I really believe in accountability. And I just learned over the years, I didn't get given many tools from psychiatrists, from therapists, I didn't get given the day to day tools to cope with myself, my emotional self. So I mentor people to put those day to day tools in their life and actually live and own what they what they've gone through or what, what condition they live with and actually have the best of what they what they've got.
0: I mean, what you've been through isn't the reason you don't drink. Um, So your story is a little bit different to people we've had on our podcast before, because it's not the reason you don't drink. You've said uh, separately that you kind of not drinking was kind of the last part of your recovery
2: journey, really. Is that right? What I realised was is over the years, I used situations, people, substances, alcohol, food, work to escape how I feel and um although drink was never a huge huge problem for me substances substance use was probably more of my thing I suppose if you like Um, but I also recognized last year that I don't personally medication has a place for my mental health and it is one of my tools in my toolkit but I'm a firm believer that medication isn't the only tool in your toolkit and it shouldn't be the majority it shouldn't be the lion's share you need so many other things otherwise it's just another thing that's numbing you from dealing with how you feel and I just started to recognize that As I'd cut out smoking, as I cut out substances, as I'd started to get a handle on my work-life balance because I was a complete workaholic and then an exerciseaholic, as I started to manage those and see that I was using them and they disappeared from my life, I started to enjoy drinking more. And then I was finding that I was taking three, four, five days to feel okay again now it's not that I was drinking every day, but work hard, go out, have a really good drink at the weekend. And what it was doing for me was sparking off huge anxiety and sending me into lows. So it was actually triggering me to go hypermanic or low or into a completely anxious, rapid cycling state. So when you've got bipolar, Actually, if you're on medication, alcohol can be a huge no-no because it actually doesn't work with medications. But pretty much everyone I know that takes antipsychotics will indulge in alcohol. But I know firsthand it it undoes everything. Um, And I just thought, if I'm really going to live a life that is balanced, that isn't completely dominated by medication, then I have to cut out alcohol I have to cut I mean I cut out the substances years ago but I have to cut out the throwing myself into work to exhaustion point because that can also trigger me off into one mood state or another and alcohol just had to go because I was taking three four five days to recover having panic attacks again you know stuff that I'd got out of years ago started really to dominate my life again last year and so yeah Unfortunately, these things. When you've got bipolar, if you don't want to live a life dominated by, you have to get real.
0: I I know by now we've kind of got people thinking. Well, what is her story? What What is Emma's story? (laughs) Because I was just going to say this because I've
1: kind of I've not seen what Alex has seen, so she's kind of gone. We've got Emma on. She's fab. She does this, and I'm like, I have no clue. So for people that don't know. (laughs) <laughs> what what brought
2: you to um the coaching so it's just naturally happened um because I share I've started to share my story openly in social media and people have come to me for advice and I give a lot of I just share with them what I've learned. I'm not a therapist and what I do isn't a replacement for therapy, but I started to share a lot of my stories. So my fitness, my Instagram account started as a fitness account um, to try and keep me accountable because I was using exercise and again, just using exercise. And um, I realized that I'd put myself in this box that unless I turned up in this fitness image, then I didn't have anything to post and I just thought this isn't real and it's just another level of pretense that I'm putting onto my life. So I just started to, I just changed the name of my account. It used to be bell fit by 40 and I changed the name of my account just back to my name. And um, I just started sharing my story. So I've always been quite open about my mental health, but I share a lot. So I documented a low and I posted that then, I also documented um, about my abuse and sexual assault story from when I was younger, as well.
0: That's the story that I saw um, on Josh's Josh Connolly from uh, who's a Nicola ambassador. Who actually we've got on the podcast next week. Um, but yeah, yeah. you and, and kind of found out about you through Josh and your story just moved me so much you reminded me, and I told you this on message, you reminded me of somebody I grew up with, I won't name <laughs> it, when you said that I, and you didn't word it like this, so I'm paraphrasing, this is what I took from it, so I apologise if I've got this wrong. No, no. <laughs> and, and you said that basically you were the kid that parents didn't want their kids to hang out with. And mm. you reminded me so much of this person that I grew up with who had a really troubled childhood and actually is doing amazing things now with their life because they've just sought for the the resilient side, the positive side. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was, I was that troubled kid. So, I mean, I, um, had a very difficult childhood. It, it was not by my mum, but by my father. So I had an actual father in my life who, who left my life when I was like four, my mum got with my stepdad. And, um, He was quite a lot older than my mum. My mum was only 16 when she had me. And his style of parenting was very narcissistic. And um, I would say that my childhood was fairly fraught with emotional mind games and abuse in a narcissistic parenting style. Um, And there was never peace in my home. It was always very difficult. So you were either being villainized or angelized and there was nothing in between. And if you were being villainized, you're being villainized to the whole family. And it was just very difficult because um, I grew up with the belief and being told that basically the whole family was miserable, the whole home was miserable. And it was because of me, because of my behavior, because I didn't conform, because I didn't agree with his very prejudiced And they were extremely prejudiced views and I wouldn't adopt them and take those out as my own. Um, So I was the kid that argued back and it wasn't just over what I was eating for dinner. It was over big issues like being really prejudiced to groups of people that I didn't agree with. Like I just didn't, I still don't agree with it. I've never agreed with it. And I knew from a little girl, I didn't agree with it. And, um, and just the mind games really. So I decided at 11 that I would leave as soon as I was old enough to leave. So I told them that. And I said, you know, as soon as I'm out of here, as soon as I can, I'm out of here because I I hate, I hate living here. I'm so unhappy. And um, he sat me down and showed me, how I would never be able to afford to do that, basically. So all that did was show me that I needed to find a way to do it with no money. So it didn't teach me that I needed to stay and behave. Mm -hmm. It teached me that, okay, I'll do it with no money then. I'll find a way. Don't know how, but I will. (laughs) Uh, So when I got to 15, I just had enough. And I was hard work, I'm sure, because there was no room for anybody to have any emotions in our house, apart from my stepdad our whole house was on eggshells and every single day would depend on how he was and someday some days months and weeks he would go weeks and ignore my mum for weeks and we'd witness it to so sit in the kitchen and he wouldn't even say hello goodbye he just walked past her wow. in and out in and out of the house for days weeks it was just and we used to just sit there and it was just, and you know, the tension in the home and oh, it was just the pits. It was pits. You start to become really sensitive. And from the know. outside, yes. Yeah. You're just on eggshells all the time. The, the whole house is on eggshells all the time. Yeah. It, is he going to be happy today? Is he not going to be happy today? Am I going to please him today? Nothing's ever enough anyway. I've learned that as an adult. I used to believe if I kept trying harder, kept trying harder, I'd please him. He'd be proud of me. He'd love me. It doesn't matter what I do, it, it will never be enough. Yes. And there'll always be that critique coming back in. So that was home life, and it just wasn't very happy. And um, the discipline was incredibly high, and it was all fear based. So it really was, and it was real fear based. So um, yeah, it was it, off, it's completely not rational. Um, Anyway, so at 15, I decided I would leave. My whole family were out in the garden. And I remember them saying, come down and help us in the garden. And I said, no, stayed in my room. And I was never allowed a key to my house anyway. Um, and I remember looking out and thinking, I'm going to go today. And I just took a small bag. I don't even think I had that much in it. I had no money, no nothing. And I just walked out the front door and left. And I felt amazing. Like I felt like I'd won the lottery, like it was it was not long after the lottery had launched as well, you know it's like you saw yeah, these people yeah. winning the lottery, and like you know that whole like I felt like I've won the lottery, you know that, so and I remember walking down thinking, I have won the lottery today, you know, like this is amazing, I'm free, I have nowhere where to go, <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing. Didn't think that far ahead. <laughs> I didn't care, I just knew I couldn't stay, so I left, and um I think. I spent many nights on friends' sofas, on friends' floors, a night up at the golf course, um, my boyfriend's house. And then my natural father's brother, who was very well known in the town, I lived in a very small town at the time, just suddenly started to befriend me and show a real interest in me and, oh, I hear that you've left and are you okay and all of this stuff. And I felt cared about and I felt like, I don't know, like this person who was a parental figure. He was my, although I was estranged from my natural father, he was my natural father's brother. Yeah. my got uncle, haven't you? Yeah. And I just thought, you know, like maybe I can have a nice relationship and, and build a family dynamic here, you know? that's respectful that's nice where this person seems to like me he seems to actually think as a human being I'm okay I'm not the pits I'm not the worst human being to be put on the planet you know Mm -hmm. which is how my stepdad used to make me feel like I was just the worst thing ever to be placed on the face of the planet and so I he, he made friends with me he made friends with all my friends and um this is when I was 15. And then this continued for like a year and a half. And then when I was 17, he used to come out drinking to the pub with me and my friends. He helped me set up my studio flat because I wasn't old enough to put my name down as a, you know, I needed a guarantee. So he put my, his name down for me. I paid for it. But, and uh, anyway, like any other night, one night we went out and he walked me home which is no different to any any other night. He watched me home often and I just adored him. I just thought this person is amazing. i put him in this like parental pedestal. I thought this is how I should be treated. He gave me a key to his house because he'd recently split up from his wife. When I first moved out of home, he'd spit up with his wife. So he'd let me babysit the children. So I've been given this enormous amount of responsibility and trust. I had just never been given. I'd never been trusted by an adult before. So, you really
0: so it was had like a level of respect for this guy at that point, and thought this man is
2: is fathering me, he's doing what a father should be doing. Yes. yes, and also that he valued me, like and he trusted me. That was the big thing. I'd never been trusted by an adult, so I had to have this adult say, "Here's key to my house, go and babysit the kids," you know. I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, this is what I've wanted to do. I've wanted to show someone that I can be responsible and, you know, and this person was giving me all of that. And, um, and he was a huge part of my life at the time and he was friends with all of my friends. Now at the time when you're young, you don't think anything of that. Looking back. Why would a man of that age want to be hanging around with a group of 16-year-old girls, really? It's a bit strange looking back now as myself at this age, thinking of myself in my mid-30s. Like, why would I be hanging around with a group of 16-year-old girls? So, but at the time, I just thought, he's my family. This is like my new family dynamic. You know, I'm looking after the kids. Like, I felt really included. Didn't think anything of it. And,
0: um, and I guess then Emma, he, you were looking for what you wanted to find in that. You know, like you'd not have yeah. something. And and I think I do it now as an adult woman in my 40s. I, I look for the best in the situation and make it what I think it is. And I think that's human nature, you know. Yeah. You want yeah. a parental father figure and that's what you were at the time. And, you know, why wouldn't you as a 17-year-old girl whose, you know, dad's brother has turned up to say, you know, I care about you, let me help you.
2: Why would you? I just, that's all I wanted. And I just kept thinking, this is how it should be. This is what a parent child relationship should be but it's super cool because he's super cool because he likes coming to the pub and he likes doing this you know so it was like that with bells on I was like well this is just amazing you know this is everything that it should be and it's happy and it's fun and he thinks I'm funny and he thinks I'm a nice person and trustworthy and you know so anyway one night we went out like any other night all my friends everybody and he walked me home like any other night went inside and i at the time when i was 17 was working in a care home and i was due to do a 12 hour shift the next day and i think by this point it was like 1 something in the morning and i just said to him um, we went into the lounge made a cup of tea sat down and i'd finished my cup of tea and i was knackered he was still drinking his and i said finish your cup of tea let yourself out i'm going to take myself to bed cuz i've got to be up early now if it had been anybody else i would have waited and seen yeah. him out. Yeah, I got it. But, bec- but because it was who it was, and he'd, we'd done this a million times, I just didn't think any of it. So I went to bed. Yeah. Now, I don't know how much later it was. I went to bed and I fell asleep. I don't know how much later it was, but I woke up and I woke up, not sure if I was dreaming or if I was awake, and I woke up to somebody in my bed behind me Now, at the time, I just had a single bed. Mm. So it's not... And I've never shared a bed with him. I've never shared a bed with him. Never. Even on the nights that I'd stayed over at his, I'd stayed in the kids' room. Yeah. So, on the floor. and So I never had had we co-slept. Yeah. Let alone in my single bed in my flat. Just never. So, anyway, I woke up and... I could feel his hands on me Jesus. in places they shouldn't be. And I just I just froze and I just thought, God, and I thought, am I dreaming? Is this real? Is it not real? Anyway, then I thought, I know what I'll do because I couldn't believe it was happening. And I thought, it can't be, it just can't be. This just can't be happening. Mm. And I just said to him, at the time I was dating this young lad at my age, same age, on and off. And uh, I said to my uncle, I said, Where is, I won't say his name, where is so and so? I thought, if I ask where he is, he'll get the message, this isn't okay. And I want my boyfriend. So I just said, Oh, you know, where's so and so? Oh, and it was so quiet and so. There was just nothing dramatic about it. I just. It was so quiet and he was so quiet and I just said to him, you know, where's so-and-so? And And he just kept saying, whispering, like, because his head was the back of my ear, just saying, don't worry, you don't need him now. You've got me. You don't need him now. You've got me. And he just kept saying that over and over again, really quiet into my ear. So, yeah, so he was saying really quietly in my ear, you know, don't need him now. You've got me. You don't need him now. You've got me. So I asked for my boyfriend again one more time and he just didn't stop and his hands just kept moving. And I just remember thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do. So then I thought, I'll just have to ask him to leave. Like he's not getting the message. So I just... Said to him over and over again. I said, "Please, I need you to leave. Please leave. Please leave. I need you to leave. Please leave. Please leave." And I just kept saying it over and over and over again. But Mm. the weird thing about it was, is I was just completely paralyzed. Still, I just fight
0: flight or freeze, isn't it? And you know, as a young girl, you're in a situation that you've never found yourself in, and yeah, I don't think you ever know how you're going to react to something Mm -mm. that you're in it. It's, it's so easy to say as somebody that's not been through it why don't you just scream why don't you hit him why did not you run why don't you do something but the reality of it is mm-hmm. until you're in that situation you don't know what the hell your body's gonna do and
2: no you're right and the thing is I've spoken to a lot of people um, especially in the last year who've been through similar experiences and Actually, one of the most common reactions is to freeze. So I know that a lot of people think it's fight or flight. But the reality is, I think that's more just film stuff. It's not real reality when people are assaulted and abused. I think a lot of people do freeze. And certainly a lot of the people I've spoken to have gone into freeze mode because they just can't believe what's going on. And it takes them time to if, you know distinguishes it is am I dreaming is it real yeah. is it happening and you and, and everyone seen that I've spoken to has that has said to me they've had that similar reaction um
0: yeah. can I ask you as well at, at that point hmm. did you have any diagnosed mental health condition at this
2: point no so well they had misdiagnosed me with depression right when I was about 15 Okay. and I got put on Prozac which sent me sky high and I, en- I ended up in the middle of a road star shaped in front of a bus right. um, and then I stopped taking it and I was chaotic anyway emotionally because I just wasn't an emotionally stable or equipped child but I suppose my bipolar was still always going on in the background adding to this turbulentness in my yeah. life
0: And I guess Um, at this point now, you've got no one to talk to. So not only are you battling with what's just happened, you've got a mental health condition that's been wrongly diagnosed and you don't know what's going on. And there's no way you're going back home, I take it.
2: Well, this is the thing. So the next thing I remember, at this point I was fairly disowned from my family Mm. um, and my stepfather when he disowned me on and off for years and when he did disown me he would insist the whole family were not to see me um but my mum and my brother used to see me in secret um which was nice and um yeah so the next thing I remember is him putting his shoes on And I remember still not moving, being in my bed and hearing him go down the hall and the front door click. And the next thing I remember is my mum being at my flat and then taking me back to their family home. And then falling asleep on the sofa and then being woken up with the police there ready to take my statement so I also know through doing trauma work that when things like that happen, your memory then become, can, can become quite patchy in that, yeah. like, in the, like you can't remember what happened directly after or how you got from here to here, but you know, you got there somehow. Um, so that's quite common too. Um, and I managed to unlock some of the memories that I had repressed doing EMDR work last year. So when I actually went and did proper trauma therapy last year, some of the memories that I'd otherwise just completely blocked came back, Um, which was interesting for me. (laughs) Um, And so anyway, so then I got told by my parents that, by my stepdad, that um, the police were there to take my statement. And I just said, you know, I don't, I don't want this. I don't need this. You don't need to call the police. All you need to do is speak to him and he's going to say, I'm really sorry. I've made a terrible mistake. I said, and then I just don't want to see him again. I don't need, I don't, you won't need the police. Why? He. I was convinced. I did not think for one minute he would deny it.
0: Yeah. You just started kind of go, oh, I'm so
2: sorry. I'm, I'm, I misread the signs. I just, yeah. What? I don't even know, but I just, all I thought was, there's no way like it just didn't even enter my head I just thought he would just say I'm so sorry made such a mistake yeah it shouldn't have happened and then I just said and you know and I just don't want to see him and that was my solution but that was not the solution that I was given so they said no you this has to be reported to the police either that will you know we're going to go around and kill him and I was like so my choice on the table was you're going to go around and kill him yeah. <laughs> I mean sure they wouldn't have killed him but you know what I mean they were angry right and um, or you it to the police so I did so I gave my statement to the police and then it just became more and more chaotic so we had to wait two years for the court case after the police came around and took my statement, they went round to my flat. They took all my bedding. They took all my clothes off me. They took some other bits out of my apartment. Um, they took all his clothes. They went around to where he was staying, um, which at the time he, was at, he had a girlfriend by then. So I think he'd gone back to his girlfriend's or she was at his. I can't remember. Anyway, wherever he was, they went and took his clothes. And they did forensics because the policemen told me once i gave the statement he did say you know this won't be easy to prove because he hasn't raped you and he hasn't ejaculated inside you so there's not a lot of evidence to be gathered which was difficult to hear because it it sort of felt like oh so it would have been easier to prove if it had been worse type of thing so yeah i get that yeah. It was a bit weird, like it was like a backhanded compliment type of thing, you know, like oh, feel yeah. lucky he didn't. But if he had, it, it'd be easy to prove, you know, like it was a bit like <laughs> oh, I don't know, a, bit, a bit weird.
0: I get it, I get <sighs> it, and I can imagine weirdly how you must have. Obviously, I can't empathise it completely, but just like kicking the teeth, isn't it?
2: Yeah. So, like, so I'm like, like so. And now I'm for nothing. Yeah. So now I'm like, so what? Because he didn't rape me, it's going to be harder to prove. it had to be worse like what so anyway and I was still convinced at this point that it wouldn't even need to get that far I was still convinced that at some point he would just turn around to me face to face and go I did it I'm sorry and I would just you know I we lived in a small town so every time we went out I would if you were out everyone was out so I would bump into him often And I was the troubled girl. I was the runaway girl. I was the girl that was falling out with her parents, whose stepfather at the time had told all the other parents how bad I was. And, you know... So I I was the troubled girl and my uncle was this upstanding man of the town who everybody loved. He was really well known in the middle of town, a nice guy. He'd done all of this stuff to help this troubled girl, which is me. And now look what I've done to repay him for all of his goodness. You know, I'm making up this terrible story about him and I'm out to ruin his life. Like, why? So, I mean, the truth was that day... I lost a lot that day because he was at that time, the only person, the only adult parental figure in my life that I really believed, believed in me.
0: Yeah. And it's just been shattered, hasn't it? In like seconds.
2: Yeah. So the truth was I I lost a lot that day. Like I lost this cool uncle, this parental figure, this person that I thought was my friend, lost contact with his children this little family unit that I thought that I could be a part of boom gone I had nothing to gain
0: no then I everything to lose you've got everybody around town thinking you've made it up
2: so you've yeah. got a kind of bullying going on as well then no doubt well it did start so that's really what it became so um uh, he sort of campaigns around town about, you know, how how could she say this about me, really played the victim, you know, she can't believe she's doing this to me after everything I've done to her done for her, blah, blah, blah. And that really turned people against me. So when I was out, I would have I had someone try and run me over in a car. I had someone bite a chunk out the back of my arm while I was in the middle of um like the local town drinking place. Um and it really was two years of like hell between when it happened and when the court case took place, which ultimately, you know, I left that town and I moved to a bigger town where people didn't really know me. And my life just got more and more and more chaotic. The more chaotic things got around me. And every time I bumped into him in town, I would be hysterical because I would just be looking at him saying, please, please just tell me the truth. Just yeah, tell you me start the to truth. question yourself, don't you? With, with all that. Yeah. yeah, Because he used to look at me and say, he used to look me dead in the eye and go, "Emma, you're mad. That like, I can't believe you're saying this about me. You know I haven't done that." And he'd say this in front of all these people that were watching. And it, and I just oh, used to say, and I used to say to him, "Please, just like tell me the truth. All you've got to do is tell me you're sorry, and I'll go and 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 this all stops. I don't even want this to go to court. I don't, I didn't, I never wanted that. Never wanted that." Just wanted him to say, sorry, I fucked up and then never see him again. That's literally all I wanted. Oh, God, Emma, that's awful. But it just didn't happen because I think, like, when I look back now, he had a lot to lose, right? He would have gone to jail and he had too much to lose. So to say sorry to me would have cost him a lot, right? And and I'd like to say to
0: people listening now, that's the end of Emma's story. She's okay. But it got worse, didn't
2: it? Unfortunately, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's true. Um, But unfortunately, yeah, I mean, it just, when you get on a rocky road, especially as a young person, what I've learned is it tends to get worse before it gets better. And the more troubled I got, my, my friends were still at home. They were like going to uni. They were, you know, All from lovely homes, lovely families, and I was just this troubled friend. I don't get me wrong; their families liked me, but I think they were all like, "Oh, like Emma's off the rails," you know, which I was. And I also had bipolar going on in the background, undiagnosed, so that was adding to the chaos. So I ended up moving into a bigger town where, where I thought, you know. I can be here and not everyone knows me. Like I don't go to the shop and I've got people spitting at me because they're pissed off with me because of what's gone on with my uncle or whatever. Right. I just, yeah. so I moved to a bigger town, but the problem with that was I then became more estranged from my peers. And I started hanging around with people a lot older than me. So 10, 20, 30 years older than me at the age of 18, 19, you know? Yeah. And, the problem with that is people that hang around with people who are 10 20 30 years younger than them or you know people that are like 18 and you're nearly in your 30s 40s 50s 60s they tend yeah. to not be that desirable or they tend to be into bad things or whatever so the people yeah. I was hanging around with were into drugs they were into all sorts of some of the things criminal and I was hanging around with them and they were saying to me don't worry you've got us now we'll look after you we'll give you somewhere to sleep you know we'll give you drugs we'll give you this we'll give you that so my life just got super chaotic and super unsafe I hadn't done any drugs until I moved out of that small town and I got given drugs for free regularly daily and I took him, and it was great. You know, I didn't have to think about life. I was having a great time. I was with all these older people. They're like, we were driving around, having a good time. And I was completely off the rails. <laughs> and, um, and then it, it just led to me being in more and more unsafe situations. And with people who I thought I could trust, who were looking out for me, who I thought were taking care of me, and again the same kind of narrative you know these older people don't worry we'll look after you now don't worry oh, I know your family life's been shit and don't worry you've got us now and you know you're part of the family and so I was like oh cool, you know maybe this is where I'm supposed to be <laughs> <You Yeah. know? laughs> I don't know maybe this is where I'm supposed to be maybe I oh, end um... up where I'm supposed to be and um you know, people giving me free, free drugs, which at the time I thought was amazing because everyone was having a good time. Yeah, And, And then eventually you end up just in more and more unsafe situations, which I did, which ultimately led to me being violently raped by a complete stranger. And there was a lady in the other room who I never saw again after that day, actually, um, who had previously told me, She was a lot older than me, Yeah, 25 years older than me, 30 years older than me. And she said to me, don't worry, I'll never let anything bad happen to you. I'll always look after you, always make sure you're okay. And I called out for her when that man started raping me. And she didn't come and she let it happen. And so I didn't see her again after that day, I just left. And the thing about it was, is I think after everything that had gone on, I just thought, you know, like nobody believed me then. And I had evidence, right? So they got all the forensic evidence and they found, he denied ever going, my uncle denied ever going in my bedroom. So he denied ever going in my bedroom, ever sitting on my bed, nothing. But they found fibres from his jeans and his t-shirt, because that's what he was wearing when he was in my bed. They found fibres from his top and his jeans On the bottom sheet of my bed, which was in It had to be in it, It it. and they were equal. So the number of fibers from his top and his bottom were completely to the fiber number equal, which would indicate he was laying Laying down, down. not sitting up. Otherwise, it would have been less from the top and more from the bottom. And but because he called my question, my character into question. Oh, jeez! Please
0: don't tell me this,
2: Emma. Yeah, because by the time the court case came round, my life was super chaotic. I was into drugs. I was hanging around with people that were into criminal stuff, and this all got brought up in front of the jury, and it got discounted. So I I don't know what the technical words are, but you know they say, "Oh, you know, jury discount that." But the trouble is, they've heard it, haven't they? Once it's been heard, it's been heard. But the point is, what he brought into that courtroom was stuff that was going on when I was nineteen not stuff that was going on when I was 17 when he assaulted me.
0: Yes. The stuff that was going on when you were 19 was probably going on as a result of the trauma that you'd experienced at 17 anyway, but he was using that against you.
2: Yeah. I mean, it wasn't directly his fault what I was doing at 19, but my life just got more and more off the rails. You know, it's just the way life went. It goes from one chaotic thing to another, to another, to another. And, um, so, yes, yeah, so that got brought up. And unfortunately, a jury can't unhear it. And yeah. even my the person that was representing me at the end, because the, the verdict came back not guilty, because they have to be absolutely sure, which I yeah. can understand. The person representing me said, Emma, you should appeal this and go for a retrial in front of a jury, because a, a fresh jury, because this has really tainted their view on you. And how I was showing up wasn't great you know 19 year old emma probably wasn't showing up the best dress the best you know so i just i didn't i didn't have the energy for it i said i can't go through another two years of getting bullied beaten up i just can't i just need to write it off and and move on and um so that's what i did so yes but what it taught me was that if people didn't believe me then when i was less chaotic when i was seventeen. Who was ever going to believe me when I was 19, when my life was even more off the rails and I was hanging around with really bad people. Um, So there was just no point. So I actually didn't talk about that rape for years. Like, I don't even know how long. I don't even know how long it was actually until I spoke about that. I'm definitely over 10 years.
0: It's like, honestly, I know it's your life but it's like watching a movie it's like yeah. this poor honestly I you want I want to say to you this poor woman she goes through all that and then they say oh you know and it's almost like this isn't it oh that one wasn't bad enough so let's give it your worse and you
2: know like, I'm not laughing because I think it's funny <laughs> yeah
0: but it, and then it's like oh well And I get why you didn't have the energy. I completely get it. And I also get the lesson that had been learned by you. So what is the point of fighting for something that's just, you were exhausted, you were drained. Mm. I I, I mean, thank you so much for sharing it, first of all. Mm. But I think now, just before we go, it would be really important to say, well, you're here. Look, you are, you're a survivor. You're a thriver. You have... Somehow, I do not know how you found strength or resilience, but you have somehow reconciled that, and now you're helping other people. You're living where you've got your medication in balance with all the adversity that you've experienced, with the adversity you're still experiencing.
2: You're helping others. So how? How? <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed. So I just, for me, I mean, I ran, the truth is I ran, I ran away for a long time. And this is kind of how we started um, our conversation today was that's why I used all these different things. So I was using drugs to begin with drugs, drink partying under the guise of partying and having a good time. Cause it meant yeah. I just didn't have to tune in to how I felt ever. Um, and then it wasn't until I got to twenty nine thirty. And by that point, I'd been using work. So I was still undiagnosed at this point. So I would then become a workaholic. So I'd stopped taking so many drugs. I just did them every now and again. And then I was a workaholic and setting up businesses here, there and everywhere, which is also part of my hypomania, but also part of escaping how I feel. Recognised it was both. And then I lost, um, We I had Two of my family members died very close together, and then somebody else died, and then my mum had like a stroke and went into hospital. and It's fine now, but it was all just happened within twelve months, really quick, and that triggered me to have a complete breakdown in two thousand and nine, the end of two thousand and nine, and that's when I then went on over that next year and a half to get the correct diagnosis of bipolar. And as that process was going on, I went and spoke to my first ever counsellor, because I'd never spoken to anyone other than like a few friends or whatever. I went and spoke to my first counsellor, and I think that was the first time that I spoke about the rape that had happened to anybody. Um, I had spoken to people, obviously, about what had gone on with my uncle before, my upbringing and all of that, but... um, and I, and I yeah spoke to someone for the first time about that rape and that person said to me Emma that you were raped it's like I, I didn't even I couldn't even find the words to say what had happened and she said no you were raped and she helped me understand what the worst part of that was and but then I just shut down again to it and I got put on a lot of heavy, heavy medication for three years. I got put on antipsychotics for three years to manage my bipolar, which yeah. again, shut all my emotions off. So yeah. the trauma healing just stopped, but I, it saved my life. It stopped me taking my own life. Um, so it was very necessary And then I changed my medication, started coming out of it, and then really since my mid thirties till now. So over the last five years, I've really, really got stuck into feeling. (laughs) It's
0: hard, isn't it? It's Mm. flurrying hard. I mean, the 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 trauma that you know, if you want to even call mine trauma, is that it is trauma Mm. that I've experienced. Start living um, with kind of alcoholic parent, different to yours, but when you feel for the first time my god
2: (laughs) you feel don't you (laughs) it's it's it's, it makes you realize how much you haven't felt so that's kind of what I was doing I was I was running I was using drugs exercise work food drink whatever to not feel and one by one I've gone identified it gone oh I'm using that oh I'm using that oh I'm using that right okay I need to deal with that I need to work through that and as each of those have got stripped away I was left with nothing but what I felt and I had to sit in it and it's painful but the highs are very high though aren't they as well yes yeah like euphoric (laughs) but at the same time There's been a lot of snot crying, you know, and um, (laughs) (laughs) there's been a lot of that, Um, which it needed to happen. But also I realized that there was so much anger in me and what I actually realized that that was grief. I was just grieving for all the things that I had imagined that I would have that I didn't have or relationships that I thought I would have that I didn't have. And actually just getting real with the reality of whatever all these situations were. Um and then to going into specialised trauma therapy, which was last year, I did a lot of trauma therapy and um completely changed my life. And I'm so grateful. Um it's been a really painful couple of years doing the work. Um, but I'm really glad I have.
0: Uh. Uh, honestly, I'm not even going to kind of go on at the end. Normally, I go on for ages, but usually with Lisa as we know, she's had to just disappear. But <sighs> on for ages now at the end, and I'm not going to do. I'm just going to say, I think you are an incredible, strong, resilient, inspirational woman, and I am so grateful that you've come on. Thank you. No, Thank you for having me. Now, honestly, Emma, I hope we stay in touch. I really do. Um, after, before I, I do say bye, welcome
2: Yeah. <laughs> you. Um, so on Instagram, I'm Emma K. Bell. So, and um, you're going to put it in the show notes and stuff. I'm um, the same on Facebook and Emma Bell on YouTube. So you can just find me with my name.
0: You're amazing, Emma. Thank you so much for sharing your story.
2: It's going to help so
0: many people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.